13th chapter of Matthew this morning. Take your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 13 will begin there. Thank you so much for preparing our hearts for this part of our worship through your song, both congregationally and choir. And, and Colleen, thank you so very much for that tremendous encouragement. And, uh, Uplifting us, <coughs> to be sure. We have a month of emphasis on prayer coming up in February. Next Sunday morning, you'll receive a special calendar uh, highlighting all those opportunities to pray together. I trust you'll be looking forward to that. We're going to be doing that every February uh, until the Lord comes. The majority of those opportunities are going to come when we're already gathered together. So it's not going to require of you um, any extra time out of your schedule during the course of the week uh, to gather together. But we are going to be handing out to you uh, a daily prayer calendar where the whole church can be praying about the same things every day for the whole month. Uh, so in addition to just gathering together to pray in unique ways, uh, when we're already here, you'll have a daily prayer calendar as well. Also, we are having a baptism the first Sunday in February, so if you've not had the opportunity to obey the Lord, and uh, since you've come to know him in baptism, we'd love to have you, uh, we'd love to help you obey the Lord that Sunday morning. Uh, we look forward to that, and of course we'll be enjoying the Lord's Supper uh, that evening together, and Following the Lord's Supper, you'll find out one of those neat and wonderful ways we're going to be able to pray together as a church family uh, in that service when we're already gathered. Um, I want to thank you for your patience with, uh, with us as we orchestrate things here in the auditorium. You've had tremendous patience with us as we've orchestrated things or had to reorchestrate things multiple times over the last two years, but... Uh, the Lord's blessed us with being able to have an upgraded sound system, including a new little microphone that I wear and a new soundboard back there and, and uh, learning different ways that uh, technology functions with itself. And we have some sound people here that just do a fantastic job with that. And, um, and everything that they do seems to work uh, as they try it. And so thank you for, thank you for that very, very much. And... Um, I may even have to have their assistance this morning uh, on a technological matter, but be rest assured, if I have to have help, it's because of me, and it's never because uh, of them. All right? All right. Well, let's pray together here this morning and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for uh, this opportunity we have to look into the perfect law of liberty and be faithful hearers we know your word records that for us from the pen of james chapter 1 and verse 25 lord as we're faithful hearers give us your help to know how to be faithful doers of your word so that we might know what it means for you to bless our deeds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
I'm sure you've been among a large gathering of people outside of church before. Maybe it was at a, a concert or maybe a ball game. And I don't know if you're like me or not, but when I'm in those large groups of people or among those large groups of people, um, I have these thoughts almost every time I'm there. I wonder how many people among these 100,000 are saved. And then I'm thinking, well, I'm sure there probably are many. And so I pray for those people. No matter where they come from, locally or across the nation or the world, I pray for those people I'm never even going to meet that night, that the Lord will use their lives uh, to be uh, gospel-driven. Gospel-driven. And then, of course, I wonder how many don't know the Lord. And you pray that those thousands of people that don't know the Lord would come in contact with people in their area that do know the Lord and that the seed of the gospel would at least be planted in their lives and that they would be saved and know the joy and the peace that only, that only Christ can offer. And then I wonder, okay, if they come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and God's going to answer my prayer and God answers our prayer, and they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through someone that obviously gave them the gospel, then how are they going to grow? How are they going to grow? And certainly we're told in 2 Peter 3.18 that we're all to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all seek to do that. Certainly they can find a local church in their area that will help them grow in that grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but is finding a body of people who meet in the building exclusively the way God's designed people to grow up into Jesus Christ. Certainly they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Certainly they may have been given a Bible when they were saved, and they begin to read that and they can grow by the Spirit of God in that way. And certainly they can grow by finding a church and listening to preaching and listening to teaching. Uh, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Certainly they can grow through worshiping. All those things are good and they're outlined in Scripture as uh, good disciplines of the, of, of the Christian life. It's governed by the Spirit of God. We have to ask ourselves the question, does God have any other additional ways in which a believer is to personally grow up into the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think that's a, that's a good question for all of us to ask. And then it's good for us to take a look at the scriptures to um, examine together how we individually and then collectively as a whole can, can learn, remember, be faithful learners and then faithful doers of what we learn together to help each other grow up into the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly we want to look at the life of Christ. Certainly if we are to be Christ-like, we certainly are to be okay with his person and his character, but we've, we've got to be okay with the way Jesus lived. And you say, well, of course I'm okay with the way Jesus lived. He was perfect. He loved people. He gave to give his life a sacrifice for everyone's sin, and you appreciate that. Well, when I talk about how Jesus lived, and 
I know you're familiar from the scriptures as to how he did live. Let's ask this question. What can we learn from the way Jesus Christ lived as to how he helped other people grow up into knowing him more? Jesus is fully God and fully man. We know that Jesus was titled a rabbi. He was a teacher. We know from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 and John chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus Christ is the complete exegesis. He's the explicit image of the glory and the person of his Father in human flesh. And certainly he was desiring people to know his Father through him and then to learn much about his Father and to know him intimately. And his whole life was... The pattern of Christ's life was so multifaceted, but it was uniquely designed by God to be an example for us as to how we can help people live Christ's life in relationship to learning and knowing the Father. How did he do that? How did he do that? Matthew chapter 13, where you're at, there's this parable, the dragnet. It's a kingdom parable. It's short. It's got a conclusion at the end of the parable that I think is helpful for us to know the mind of Christ, the relationship of what he wants us to know. This is what he knew. This is what he says disciples are to know. His followers are to know. This is what he intended his followers to know in that time and then us consequently. Again, the kingdom of heaven, verse 47, Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into the containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In verse 51, he kind of changes gears and just concludes by addressing specifically those who were not cast into eternal condemnation, those who were scribes now called disciples. He says, this is really what these people do. Have you understood these things? And they said to him, yes. Now, having concluded that they understood He says this, and Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. If you study this parable, I think you'll come to the conclusion that the treasure of the new and the old is really the revelation of God to man, both Old Testament and New Testament. Someone who's become a scribe to a disciple is to take the lead. He's to be the head of a household for himself, right? devouring God's word in both testaments to be able to do something with it. To be able to do that which Jesus Christ did himself in leading others to Christ and then training them in the word of God by their knowledge of it. Okay? That's what kingdom people do. Now, go over to the familiar passage that we have about doing this, that you're all 
acquainted with in Matthew chapter 28, a few pages. Over to your right. Thinking and the conduct of the Master, the whole of the Word of God, the whole of the will of God, Lordship. End of quote. So we enter this relationship of learning following our salvation. We're committed to it for sure. All of you are here this morning, and I'm assuming that's the case. And that's why I'm assuming you're even here. We're imperfectly committed to it, but committed nonetheless. We learn to fellowship, we learn to worship, we learn to serve, we learn to grow in grace. And these are all divine and necessary things, but they're virtues and disciplines and practices learned unto a purpose. Unto a purpose. You see, mankind for thousands of years have been learning their religions and philosophies in similar ways. And we'll study some of those ways today. But when we come to know Christ, we learn of him and his teaching that it's absolute. Learning of him is different than nearly learning philosophy from a philosopher in ancient Greek times. It's different than learning philosophy in a modern classroom. Those teachers had something to teach to be sure, and their students would learn it and own it, but their students were encouraged and are encouraged to expand on what they've learned to go out and teach new things to the learned in the same way that they had been taught. With Christ, who is God's absolute and perfect representation of himself, when we come to know him, he exclusively asks us to learn of him and not to expand on what we learn of him, but to commit our whole lives to pursuing knowledge of his person and character and lifestyle. There's nothing to expand or to be added to what has already been revealed to us in the person of Christ himself and in the life of Christ in a sufficient scripture that you hold in your laps this morning. As his disciples, we learn and follow him and we live our lives doing that and sharing him with others who don't know him. Another favorite author of mine said thus, when Jesus tells us to go into all nations... We are to go into all the world with his agenda, exclusively not our own. The Great Commission calls us to work with other believers in the church in order to produce disciples and flood this world with knowledgeable, articulate Christians who worship God and follow Jesus Christ passionately, end quote. So Matthew tells us in verse 18 of Matthew 28, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age." Now, this is where I'll have to have the tech team come up because the iPad I'm using that is theirs is locked, all right? And that's my fault, as I told you, not theirs. 
What I want to do this morning for the remainder of our time together is just examine with you the example that Christ lived for all of his followers to mimic. That's not difficult. Okay. You say that's quite simple. And folks, it actually is quite simple to understand. We're going to race through what we call a biblical hermeneutic of what it means to be a disciple in time, not just a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because as I stated earlier, there were similar patterns of learning for hundreds of years throughout human history that Christ actually taught. If you study Pauline literature, there's a lot of information out there today um, from a lot of uh, maybe uh, critics that maybe don't know the Lord, they'll take Paul's writings and they'll say Paul was a scam because he really plagiarized a lot of what the philosophers said. There's material out there that if you put Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle's statements next to a lot of Pauline statements, they almost look identical, verbatim. Paul wasn't plagiarizing. Paul was well-educated. And under inspiration, it's certainly okay to use somebody else's statement if it's true of common grace and can be applied to saving grace as we grow up into Christ-likeness. But him doing that just tells us that in his life, he's looking over 500 years earlier in history learning how even philosophers taught their disciples. And by the way, their followers were called mathetes. They were called disciples. We'll see that this morning. And there were patterns, there were ways in which they learned the teachings of their philosopher. We'll move forward in human history into an intertestamental time period, and we'll go beyond that to the latter Old Testament time period, to the life of Christ and the Gospels. And we'll learn that even Christ was utilizing with his disciples, his band of 12, similar learning patterns that were utilized hundreds of years before he even came up on the scene of history. And so by the time we get to the point where we're saying, go and make disciples, we're going to find out that even his disciples, when they were told that, those 500-some people that we assumed last week were gathered on the day of his ascension, when they heard, you will be my witnesses and you are to go make disciples, they weren't really wondering what that meant when Jesus said that. We're going to find out this morning that they had hundreds of years of a historical, cultural, academic, educational context in which there were very similar patterns of learning for generations. Only now, they're expected to preach a message. An exclusive message of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as many did throughout history, once they followed their philosopher, once they followed their rabbi, Right? They were to go train others to follow as well. Let's learn together. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. 
Now, what is before me, my dear friend, is the order of service and hymns. Now it's not. Look at that. Click. All right? Good. Go and make disciples. Before we get to this first slide, this is an imperative. We're going to find out what this means this morning. It comes from a root verb, matetuo, which just means to learn and to follow. To learn and to follow. So we call this the mission of the church. We call this the mission of the church. You say, well, Pastor Tim, we do a lot of time, spend a lot of time worshiping, serving, teaching, learning, and, and all those things we've, you've already said are great. We spent 35 minutes last week going through the history of our church since 1948, highlighting some of those virtuous things we do together. And those are all necessary. Wednesday night, I explained those things as kind of like the necessary shaft to a spear. But this imperative to make disciples is really the tip of the spear. In other words, as we learned from Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus last week, the church of Ephesus had really no problems teaching, training, serving, worshiping, calling out error, and doing righteous things. They were a faithful church, but Jesus says, you've forgotten to do the first things, which tells me that you really have lost your love for me. And those first things, as we said last week, was really that tip of the spear. Make disciples. We're going to learn what the tip of that spear is, and we're going to learn that each of us in this auditorium is responsible to own the tip of the spear. Right? Responsible to somehow learn by grace how to be the tip of the spear and to make disciples. Before we go into the depth of the historical, cultural, grammatical hermeneutic of what this verb means to make disciples, this imperative, I want to talk about real quickly what disciple making is not. You see that here. It's not a program. It's a lifestyle that each of us owns. It's not merely teaching. It's not merely teaching. We've talked about that. Teaching may be part of the development of the disciple maker, but it's not merely just teaching. It's not merely just reaching. If everyone in the church was outreaching, but they weren't being developed through teaching and worshiping and other things that the shaft of that spear has to offer, right, then there wouldn't be a developed people for God capable of being the tip of the spear. So it can't be just teaching and it can't be merely reaching. And I say here, it's not merely discipleship. And I say that in relationship to our current culture because the church across the world does a lot of things in the name of discipleship. Anything from small groups or various gatherings within the church, even down to a Bible study, you say, doesn't that include discipleship? It's part of the shaft, it's part of the preparation, it's part of the necessity for doing the tip of the spear, but we're going to examine what it means to be the tip of the spear this morning. 
Discipleship is not merely bound up in a volume or a class. So, Pastor Tim, I've studied the Bible with someone. I've actually studied a book of the Bible with someone, or I've even taken someone through our discipleship book called Foundations, and and, uh, I led them to Christ, and I've taken them through that, and that's all good, and that's fine, and it's necessary, but it's just not it. Its responsibility is never placed upon parachurch organizations. Jesus said, upon myself, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. In Matthew 28, in this post-resurrection appearance, we look at Luke's account in the Acts chapter 1, we learn that, that the marching orders for the church are given to the 500 who would become the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. So the marching orders to be the tip of the spear have always been exclusively, and can I say only, to the local church. Disciple making is not exclusively bound to one-on-one relationships or even small groups. There's no silver bullet as to some kind of mathematical formula as to how it works. Jesus had 12 as the creator of the universe, and one of his wasn't even saved. So what does this mean? People often say, well, Grace Church has this one-on-one discipleship thing, and and I understand where they get that. Can I tell you where they get that? They're going to get that from the history that we're going to look at this morning in relationship to what discipleship was for hundreds of years, even before Christ came to earth. The whole etymology of this word in history teaches us that our responsibility is to try to at least reach one and at least train one. And it may ultimately be only one that we reach or train, but more often than that, it's more. So you'll see that as we go along. But I want to encourage you that it's not exclusively bound to one-on-one relationships or small groups. Why? Because many of you have been trying to reach someone for Christ for years and you don't even have one soul that you've led to Christ yet. And I'm not here to guilt trip you over that. The tip of the spear is about obedience. It's really not about results. The results are God's. There's been famous missionaries that you know their names who served in fields for years and only had a convert or two. And one I'm thinking of didn't even have a convert until the end of his life and didn't even have a chance to disciple him. The glory for us is in the obedience to the imperative as being the tip of the spear. But if God is pleased to grant you at least one soul to be saved, then certainly we'll find out this morning that our heart's passion and obedience to this imperative would be to to train that one. Being a disciple maker is making sure that we're not being discipled by someone outside of our local church. Since the Great Commission command is given to the local church and the development of that command The obedience of that command ought to be done within the local church. 
That's the context of all these passages that we've already looked at, we will look at this morning. Can you learn from others outside your church? We all do. I do. You do. We'll find out that the nature of disciple-making is so intimately personal that it's going to demand the majority of your time being done with spiritual duplication right inside our local church and community. And we all owning that There really isn't much time left after that to go and get a lot of learning from the outside. So what is disciple-making? It's a normative, local church, individual responsibility that God the Spirit empowers as Christ builds His church. We chose those words as carefully as possible. It's normal, it's here, it's you and me individually, and it's something that God the Spirit throws his might and his ability behind, and that's the way that Christ builds his church. We don't build the church, Jesus builds the church. 2 Corinthians 4, as we studied last year, he just happens to use these worthless pots that have a hidden treasure within them in the process, which is incredibly exciting and humbling. So it is each saint shouldering the responsibility to spiritually reproduce themselves. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the tip of the spear. Go and make disciples. Go do pretty much what I've done. I've only led you for three and a half years. I know that hasn't been a really long time. (laughs) But all authority has been given to me and all power has been given unto you. The Spirit of God's coming. He'll indwell you. You'll be okay (laughs) in being the tip of the spear. And we'll find out this. Hundreds of years of human history, even before Jesus came, that it really is the commitment of a life to another life for life. The Lord Jesus Christ mirrored that, right? Goes to his disciples, come follow me, they follow me. He says in John 13, he's announcing his ascension. The disciples are burdened. He goes, don't worry, I'm going to send to you another internal discipler, the, the, the Holy Spirit. I've loved you, and I'll love you with an everlasting love even unto the end of the age. And Jesus Christ is still the shepherd of our souls, isn't he? (laughs) Praise God for that. But then he tells them, as I will forever be the shepherd of your souls, I need you to be the shepherd, the under-shepherd of other souls. What a humbling responsibility. Really, folks, there's so many other things that disciple-making is besides this, but really it's not going to be done unless our pastor teachers are doing it. The tip of the spear for the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, as Paul wrote to Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus at that time, There's an imperative there that says, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy didn't have the gift of evangelism like the Apostle Paul did. 
So he's commanded to do it. The work of the evangelist in 2 Timothy chapter 4 for a pastor is really the doing of Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It's be the tip of the spear for the flock. Why? Because the pastor teachers are to set the pace for what this really is. They're to model it for the flock publicly so the flock knows how to model this among one another personally. Are you with me? The pastor teachers model this in their life publicly so the flock knows what this means to model it for each other personally. So as we model this publicly, understand it includes us having personal redemptive relationships with lost people and with people that come to know Christ that we personally are training in the word. I've been a Christian since I was five years old. I'm not even going to try to do the math in my head. It doesn't matter. Since I was five. Right? From the day I trusted Christ as my Savior, Jesus said to me, come and follow me. And I will make you fisher of men. I didn't even know at five years old I was going to be a pastor teacher. But that's what God called me to do as a believer at five years old. He called me to be a disciple maker. As you grow up, you learn what that means. When I became a pastor at Grace Church of Mentor in 1991, I will tell you, I still had no idea what it meant to do the Great Commission personally, even though I had preached it. I think I was a pastor here for some 18 years preaching this text without really understanding what it meant for me personally until we dove into this study with myself some dear pastor friend of mine in california another one in new york city another one in idaho another one in north carolina and a group of us got together among our own staff as well and we said we've got to figure this out we've been preaching it for years God's been merciful to us, but do we really even know as pastors what it means to be the tip of the spear? And we agonized over this for a long time. A lot of the information you'll get for the rest of today, and we conclude with this next week, we'll take a week off, and then we'll start the book of Job in February. It took us a long time to learn this. This is a lifetime of learning, folks. And it's okay. God's merciful. He's patient. But we just share with you from God's word and history, what we really believe it is. The conclusion is, if the pastor is not personally the most active, then what? Those who are following him probably won't be very active either, so the pastor's got to know it, he's got to own it, he's got to live it in order to obey it, so that we might know what it means for the Holy Spirit to work through us in the building of God's church. What is a disciple maker? What is a disciple maker? I want to look at a, a biblical theology of what this is this morning and conclude next week. We've already read Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We've noticed some of the verbs and verbals. Out of all of the action items, so to speak, in the Great Commission, we know that the main verb is make disciples. Make disciples. As a matter of fact, if you look at the other accounts of the Great Commission in the Synoptic Gospels, 
you'll realize that Matthew is the only one that uses this, this imperative, make disciples. Study Luke's account, study Mark's account, and lay them both next to Matthew's account, and you'll see that this make disciples is really a governing verb among all three accounts of the Great Commission. So we have to really understand what does it mean to be this and to, to do this. We already understood that the root of this imperative comes from the, the verb root, mathetua, which means to, um, to learn of someone, to learn of who they are and what they teach so that you can become a follower of that someone so that you can go out and influence another in the same way. That's really the history of what we'll know about this word that's been in really Hellenic culture, Greek culture, for hundreds of years again before Jesus came. So if we're going to do a biblical theology of both testaments of what disciple-making is, we've got to look at the Old Testament. Now you know here at Grace we see a clear distinction between uh, Israel and the church. The Great Commission was exclusively given to the church but as I said earlier in the sermon this morning, there are ways that mankind has been learning from mankind that are similar for millennia of time. You could probably think of some Old Testament examples of people who were teaching and those who were learning. One of the most glamorous that probably comes to your mind right away is Moses and Joshua, right? What a sacred relationship that was for the purpose of the leadership of Israel. You might even think of Eli and Samuel, right? Parents dedicate this boy to the use, God's use, and serving in the temple. There's a time for Eli to train this man. You might even look at Moses' father-in-law, who at a time of great stress in the leadership of Israel in the wilderness... He came and gave advice to Moses to get Moses unstuck and out of his fear of leading those people. And the advice was what? Take the millions and break them down into thousands and hundreds and even tens and put leaders over those tens and communicate to those leaders to communicate to the nation. That's a pattern. That's a pattern. But what we know from the Old Testament is that there is no Septuagintal equivalent for the exact word make disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Now, for those of you who are newer to the Lord, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. So you take the whole Old Testament translated into Greek, that's the Septuagint. But we know from the Old Testament there's no exact equivalent of the aorist imperative, Matthew 28, make disciples. But we do know that there is an equivalent for the root of the imperative to make disciples. And it's found in Jeremiah chapter 12. Would you go there with me this morning? Let's find out a little bit about what it meant to learn or to follow in the Old Testament by looking at this prophet. Jeremiah. 
This root is not only used here. Go and study. Cross-reference here Isaiah chapter 50. As a matter of fact, I believe it's a messianic uh, reference there. And it's really a prophecy of the heart of the Lord Jesus for us. The heart of God through the Lord Jesus uh, for us. And this word is also used in that chapter in a beautiful way. But in the most simple and ordinary way, it's used here for our understanding this morning. Jeremiah chapter 12. And let's look at verse 16 together. He writes, Then if they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, as the Lord lives, even as they are taught, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. But if they will not listen, then I will uproot that nation, uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. Verse 16, but if they will really learn. There it is. Right? There it is. The Hebrew word here is the Hebrew word lamad. And it really means the learning of the whole person. So if you take this Hebrew word lamad and you translate it into the Greek, it would be a form of mathetuo, disciple, or I learn, or I follow. That's the simple verb form and so when the Old Testament hearer of this prophecy hears if they will really learn they know what that means this is, this is the giving of the whole person to the whole of the message for the whole of their life from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet right whether you're a dichotomist or whether you're a trichotomist. It's the giving of the whole body, mind, and soul, spirit to the learning process. It's the, it's the baptism of self into learning something. So the Old Testament nation of Israel knew. They had, they had learned similar learning passion, uh, patterns even from pagan religions and pagan cultures around them. For some reason, and for good reason, right? God set up learning in somewhat of a leader-apprentice reality since the beginning of time. And we still have that today. Right? That's why we have internships. That's why we have apprentices in the trades, right? That's why we have people that are training up underneath us, right? 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. That's why we have Pastor Steve and Mike and others here who are gifted that are going to faithfully take the reins when Pastor Kent and I move on to what the Lord has us to move on to. This is just a natural pattern, whether, in, whether you're an electrician or whether you're a physician <laughs> or whether you're the owner of a small company. It's been throughout all of history. This is just how mankind teaches and how mankind learns. So that's the easy part of it. But it does apply even to our Christian life only with a supernatural message. We move on into... 500 to 300 BC, so uh, almost a half a millennia before Jesus is even born, and, and the angels sing to the shepherds on the hillside. 
What do we know about how the Hellenic mind or the Greek mind learned? This is the time of the philosophers that we've already mentioned before. And they had followers called Mathetes. As a matter of fact, if my resources are correct, you can go back and find in history that Homer, who was a philosopher, you would probably say he was a poet, he was both. <laughs> and Socrates saw him as the supreme teacher in ancient Greece. Socrates had his own student. His chief disciple had a name, it was Plato. And Plato had his disciples, the chief among being one Aristotle. And Aristotle also had his disciples, the most famous being Alexander the Great, leader of the Greek Empire. It's amazing to us how these handful of men really shaped human history. Just five of them shaped human history. But there's, there's a nobility behind the simplicity of the teaching and the learning and the following and the duplicating. And when you take this mere pattern that God by his grace through common grace has presented to man and you add a divine supernatural omnipotent message to it, all authority has been given to me, all power will be given to you. Now go and make disciples. We, we learn how simple but yet how profound being the tip of the spear really is. But what do we know about these folks in this Greek time period? In other words, as Socrates followed Homer, Socrates would have been called a mathetes, a disciple of Homer. This is what would have described Socrates' life. He would have been a learner. He had to learn from a master or a teacher. So as he's learning from Homer, he's He's, he's tied into the giving of his whole self is given fully to his philosopher. They're committed. In other words, the day that Socrates steps out to follow Homer, he's following Homer. From what I understand, from what our study group understands about Philosophers and Mathetes at this time, there was no philosopher hopping. Their guy was their guy, as far as we know. And they were so committed that they became imitators of these men. There's a whole list of material, reference material, that we can offer to you and will offer to you this week. We can go back and study this out on your own. So when Homer's being followed, those who are following him are even, are even beginning to uh, not just speak the same things that he's taught them, but this, this even applied sometimes to the way they dressed, the way they spoke, their inflection, their pitch, their volume. This came down even to sometimes their eating habits. One reference even says even, you know, if, 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 if Homer had a distinct way that he walked and he gestured while he taught, 
that those who followed him would in time learn that gait and learn that gesture. They were mimics. And what does the word mimic mean? It means to mimic. Some of you say, wow, the older you get, Pastor Tim, you look and sound and walk a lot like your dad. Okay, I'm assuming that's good. Amen. Right? These men were devoted. The Hellenic culture this time, this was almost religious, religious-like in this culture. This became the way people learned how to learn. It included a fellowship. Koinonia, sound like a familiar term? 500 years before Jesus is on the scene, before the church had a fellowship. Pagan culture had a close-knit fellowship. They had all things in common. And you know what defined a fellowship? That Homer's followers continued to live what he taught them in teaching others after Homer died. That's what a fellowship was. Our rabbi Jesus, right? That very resurrected, ascended, coming again. He's left us. We're a fellowship in a local body. But folks knew what this discipline was so long ago. Not underpinned by divine help. This is just what common grace did in daily disciplines of learning. What about the period between the Testaments as we close this morning? The Jewish mind was tremendously influenced by Greek culture and thought. The Jewish written history was called the Talmud. The followers of the Talmud were known as the Talmud. So the philosophers had the Mathetes, the disciples, the followers of the Talmud had followers, students called the Talmud. And after the tradition of the Greeks with the philosophers and their disciples, the teachers of the Talmud had their disciples called the Talmud, and this was the beginning of the rabbi position in Jewish history. The teachers of the law and the Talmud would come to be known as rabbis. And from what we understand from history, that this was not something obviously the Jewish mind came up with. They looked at the learning patterns of a pagan, irreligious culture alongside of them and their success, and they thought, you know what? We need a bit more structure. We need a bit more formal way of learning and replicating. From what we know from the origin of this rabbi position and the fellowship of the Talmud that in time this came to give birth to some formal schools of education within Judaism the Hillel and the Shammai schools of thought and you can go back and study those two schools uh, that existed certainly even in the time of our Savior that he lived and this is how the Talmud are described. Look how similar. They were learners and listeners. You'll notice a lot of similarities between the Talmud and the Mathetes. They were learners and listeners. They had to have a teacher, a singular teacher. 
right? They weren't rabbi hoppers as the mathetes weren't philosopher hoppers. They were to pass along the teachings of the rabbis to the Talmud and so forth and so on through various means. They were imitators in very much the same way. What did Jesus call the Pharisees? Why did what? Sepulchers. They had a form that was pristine on the outside, but how did he describe their inside? Not too pretty, right? When you think historically back on that pristine, cultured, educated form on the outside, now think about the history of how far back this goes. Jesus knew being a rabbi, the history of learning of mankind, for sure. And he knew they were all over form without substance. But they knew the form. He didn't call the form wrong, did he? No. He was a perfect obeyer of the law himself. You could be beautiful on the outside, polished on the outside, and in desperate need Christ on the inside for your sin-sick soul. But they were imitators. When their rabbi died, those Talmud would continue on under the teachings of that rabbi, and they would form a fellowship. The Jews added this aspect of service. And within Mosaism, that makes sense. All the different ways that the nation could worship and serve if they were going to become one of these formal leaders. And in Christ's day, the, the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have been the formal representation, the physical representation of this form of learning, and they all had their various ways to serve within the Mosaic community. And they were committed to life. They were committed for life to the life that was established before them by their rabbis. And next week when we get together, we're going to look at the New Testament reality of disciple-making. There are over 250 times in the New Testament where a form of the noun mathetes or simple verb form mathetu are used throughout all of the New Testament scriptures. We're going to take a few looks at those. We're going to find out from Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14 that even in an Old Testament context, John the Baptist had disciples. What does that mean? We're going to find out that the Pharisees had disciples in Mark chapter 2. And we're going to find out in the chapter of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, he had disciples. What does all this mean? And then we're going to go explore the rest of the New Testament, and we're going to come up with some practical conclusions on what it means for you and I to be the tip of the spear. Historically, grammatically, practically, spiritually, theologically, Christologically, what does it mean for us to be the tip of the spear simply, but profoundly, and all of us doing it together. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for this opportunity we have to examine uh, your marching orders, your last command being our first opportunity. Help us, Lord, to remain with open minds and open hearts as we learn this together as a body, in Christ's name.